0: Yes. All right. Wow, that was pathetic. But uh, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> um, we started a new series last week called the Sermon. Um, everybody was when it was up there last week, where people were going, "Yeah, you're going to preach a sermon." It's we're, the sermon. You know, it's like a, it was not like an informational thing. But we're going to be looking at the greatest sermon I believe ever preached in the history of mankind. The words of Jesus Christ, and we did an intro last week. It's going to be Matthew five through seven. Jesus, they call it the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see the title of today. This will actually be. Um, where we're at in the next few weeks is the pursuit of happiness, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a little while. But it's the only full-length sermon that we have re- recorded in Scripture by Jesus. We have a lot of teachable moments. He gives parables. Um, he has His disciples and He teaches them different things. Um, he heals people. He touches people. But this is the, the, the only full-length sermon that we have by Him, and I think that uh, we should probably take note of what He's trying to tell us. You know, we have that mindset sometimes that we would love for Jesus to show up and just tell us what to do. Well, He does. In the Sermon on the Mount, He's going to talk to us about different things and, and, and our hearts and, uh, and to conform us to be more like Him. A lot of these passages, if you've grown up anywhere near the church, you've heard these passages, but I, I encourage you to, 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 to hear it in a new and fresh way, allowed to speak to your heart in a fresh way. I encourage you to read it um, and study it and, and apply it again, even though you've read it um, before. Take different, you know, you know, you read the Bible, take different uh, translations and read it and study it and see what the Lord would, uh, would speak to you. And I encourage you to do this. Whenever you read the Bible, if you don't do this already, I encourage you to make this a habit. I started making this a habit probably about a couple of years ago. Just, you know, I read the Bible, but just before you read it, say, just ask the Lord, just say, Will you speak to my heart? Will you teach me something about yourself? Will you make me more like Jesus and show me something maybe that I didn't know? Because guess what? Even though we've been in the church a long time, some of us, and I grew up in church, we don't know everything there is to know about everything about God. And we need to open our hearts and receive from Him. So read it, study it with your family, alone, whatever, just read it and, uh, and, and apply it to your life. Um, it's interesting, just the setup is that he's teaching his disciples. He, um, there was a crowd following him, and he pulls his disciples at the beginning of Matthew 5. He pulls his disciples um, up to a higher place on the mountainside, and he sat down. He began to teach them, but there was a multitude around. By the time the Sermon of the Mount is over, there is a large crowd gathered around listening to his words. And they saw something in him. They, they heard authority, because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the people were in amazement that he taught with such great authority, unlike the teachers of religious law that they had, their own teachers. He taught with great authority. And so what he was doing is he was telling them about the kingdom that he was bringing to the earth. This is somewhat right at the beginning of his earthly ministry. He had been baptized. The devil tempted him for 40 days in the wilderness. We have that... Um, kind of unfolding after, after John baptizes him. He goes out, he's tempted. He comes back in, he, he begins to minister to people, and this is sort of at the beginning. And what he's doing is he's making a statement that there's a new kingdom that is coming and that he is ushering in a new kingdom, a new way of doing things, a new system, an eternal kingdom that is not of this world. Is this thing kind of humming or is it uh, switch them? We're going we're gonna to switch it up. little technical difficulty. We've been having. Whoa. Yeah, this one's on. Nobody likes that cutesy mic anyway. This is like a preacher's mic. Here we go. I might throw it at you in a minute. <laughs> Just. Just toss it around the room. But Jesus is, he's introducing a new kingdom, and, he's, and he obviously is the King of Kings, and he's ushering them in this new system, a new way of thinking about things, a new way of doing things. He gives us keys in this sermon and revelations to being a part of his kingdom and what that means. His teachings were not intended to be great suggestions but necessary life applications that will transform the way we live to make us more like Him. It's a heart revelation that we want. Again, we have to hear with new ears and allow the Spirit to speak to our hearts. And I I prayed this earlier, but what James says is to be doers of the Word. It's easy for us to hear this stuff and just take it for granted. I'm as guilty as anyone of doing that. Well, I want to be a doer of the word. I want to be transformed by the power of the spirit and the power of the word of God. And if we will apply this stuff to our lives, it will, it will change us from the inside out. But interestingly enough, all through the sermon, you will see the greatest revelation that Jesus gives is himself. A lot of what he preaches, he's describing himself. He's describing the kingdom that he's ushering in and he's describing his nature. He's describing his heart. He's describing his personality. And he's saying, if you get this, you will get me. And that's really the application of Scripture. Is, is that's why Jesus, at one time, he said, I am the living word. I'm the word made flesh. What does he mean by that? But he's the revelation in here. We find him in here. We get him when we apply it to our lives. So he reveals himself. And the, our goal should to become more like him. And so he gives us a glimpse of his heart and his life, and I love it. Again, you can, as you read this, just pretend he's talking right to you because he really is and what he's trying to say to us. So open up our hearts and listen to this and, and, and as, we go, um, as we go along here. I'm going to be actually looking, um, uh, this first part of the sermon is uh, what we've always known, uh, if you've been in the church, it's called the Beatitudes, um, I call this the pursuit of happiness, and I will um, let you know why I put that up there. But uh, we're going to be in Matthew f- ver- um, chapter five, verses three, and four, I'll read that in a moment. But the Beatitudes, the principles Jesus is teaching here are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. Why is that? Because the word Beatitude is it's really blessed. When he said, blessed are those, it's at the beginning of each of these Beatitudes. Blessed are this, blessed are that. We're going to get into that in a moment. But it's translated from the Latin word B-E-A-T-I. I don't know how to, Beati or whatever that, that is. And I'm not trying to impress you with my Latin, obviously. Or you'd be applauding right now. You know, <laughs> He's amazing. Um, but really, it's taken because what he's saying is this is what your attitude should be. Be attitude, get it? They were clever back then, too. But there's a deeper meaning of the word blessed. We're going to go to the next slide here because what he's saying is when he says, blessed are, you know, and, and he gives all of these beatitudes, what he's talking about is the word there is, it really means happy, but it's not just happy like. I got a lollipop and I'm happy, it really means this. It's eternally happy, spiritually prosperous, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of outward conditions. Isn't that a great definition? Write that down if you want, or memorize it if you're good. Eternally happy eternally happy spiritually prosperous with life joy and satisfaction in god's favor and salvation regardless and that is the key regardless of outward conditions because a lot of times our happiness is based on our circumstances and the promise of jesus here is do you really want to be happy and blessed how many of you want to be happy and blessed there's all kinds of ways to do that but jesus is going to give us the keys of being happy and blessed he's going to show us how But it's not going to be based on outward condition. Everyone wants to be happy, or most people. Most everybody are trying to pursue and gain some form of happiness. It's even in the DNA of our nation. The Declaration of Independence, what does it say? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. We have a right in our nation to pursue happiness. Isn't that interesting? That we have the right to pursue happiness. The problem is, is where do people find Happiness. Because the sad reality is we have the right to pursue it, but there's not a lot of happy people on the planet. It's a lot of sadness, a lot of darkness. Sometimes we have happy moments, but you guys know those happy moments fade, or we look forward to an event or something happening. But that comes and goes, and then real life is right on the heels of that. And so a lot of times we are looking for happiness in the wrong place. We create in our minds what we, what we need to make us happy. But it does not bring us, what he's saying, eternal happiness. You know, we look to you know, a relationship, money, power. You know, the, you know the routine. It's all across our culture and all across this world that people are striving for happiness, striving for something that will bring them some sort of contentedness, and it always ends up being empty. It's temporary. I'm not saying that it's not fun for a moment or there's not some temporary happiness. There is, but if we're looking for it to bring us eternal happiness, we will always come up empty. Because we were created more than just a temporary happiness. We're pursuing it, but few are finding it. So Jesus here in the sermon, he's going to reveal to us how to truly be happy, eternally happy. Spiritually prosperous, joy, satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of what outward conditions. That's why you can meet some people that are poor in this life, but they are eternally happy inside. Because they are prospering in God and not prospering just as the world says, well, if you prosper by world standards, you will be happy. How many millionaires are depressed How many people of power are unhappy? And I want the happiness. I want the contentment that Jesus offers us. Spiritual prosperity, regardless of outward conditions. It's opposite of the world. And we have to catch it in the heart of Jesus to be able to get it. It will go against the flow of the world because the world and its systems are constantly moving that direction. And that's why Jesus ushering in, when he's talking about this whole Sermon on the Mount, he's ushering it in a different kingdom and a different way of looking at things and a different system. It will go against the grain of the world every time. But he offers us eternal happiness. He offers us prosperity in God regardless of outward conditions. So how do we get it? We're going to break the Beatitudes down um, basically two each over the next few weeks. There's so much rich stuff in these Beatitudes that I I want to take time on each one. But today we're going to look at the first two. So Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, or you could say eternally happy and prosperous in God are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, are happy, eternally happy. Prosperous in God are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so these Beatitudes, basically the question is, what should our attitudes be? You know, attitude is so important. You've heard me use this quote before, but it says, attitude, not aptitude, determines your altitude. Isn't that good? That was not mine. I, just, I heard that recently, and, and I thought how very powerful that is. Because most people, most, when, when you have companies, when you have churches, and, and, and you're looking for people, you know, a lot of people go, well, what, what kind of people do you look to, to promote, to, to, to give position, to, um, to, you know, to give them some sort of, of influence or power in your system? Most people will say, I'm looking for people with the right attitude. Because it's their attitude, not their aptitude. You can take somebody that's very gifted at something, and if they have a very bad attitude, you really don't want them on the team, do you? Look at it in sports. Randy Moss comes to mind. Vikings fans that are glad to get rid of him. Phenomenal athlete, right? But most coaches look at him as a liability because of his attitude. Phenomenal athlete. I mean, that guy is gifted beyond, I mean, athletically gifted beyond most people. But when he comes onto a team, it's all about him. There's another guy, Terrell Owens, that that had that same problem, who's retired now. Terrell Owens, one of his famous quotes when they were talking about, you know, his ability to be on the team, and, and somebody was kind of backing him into a corner, and he says, I love me some me. That's what he said. I love me some me. That's a problem. (laughs) Because you're talented, but we need you to love you some team. And so attitude is huge. Philippians 2, Paul says this, have the same attitude as Christ did. And in the sermon, we find out what he's talking about in attitude, of what our attitude should be. Every day we have an opportunity to have that same attitude as Christ, as Paul said, have the same attitude as Christ. Well, how do you do that? You need to be close to Him. That doesn't just happen just because we want to be more like Christ, we have to walk with Him. That's why He created us in this whole thing of intimacy and relationship with Him. The more we're with Him, the more we act like Him. And so every day is an opportunity. To have the attitude of Jesus, no matter what is brought in front of us. If somebody offends you, you have the opportunity to have the attitude of Jesus. If somebody's kind to you, you have the opportunity to have the attitude of Jesus. When your spouse is getting on your nerves, you have the opportunity to have the attitude of Jesus. When your kids are off the chain, for you older folks, it means bad. Sometimes it can mean good, too, that they're off the chain. Off the chain bad, off the chain good, whatever. You have the opportunity to act and have the attitude of Jesus. So attitude one in Matthew 5, 3 from the sermon, what is Jesus saying? Blessed, happy, eternally happy are those that are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he puts a huge promise on this. He said, you want want the promise of the kingdom of heaven? Poor in spirit. What does that mean? It really means, if you just grabbed one word, humility. Humility. We see that in Philippians 2, have the same attitude of Jesus Christ. He walked in humility. He humbled himself. Took on the form, the Bible says, he took on the form of a slave, of a servant, Here's the king of the ages coming to the earth, ushering in a different kingdom and taking on the form of a servant. How many kings do you know willingly transfer their kingship into a form of a servant? You won't see it on the earth or rarely see it on the earth. And Jesus did that. He ushered in humility and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean? This word poor in spirit. Jesus is saying here, it, the humility is, it's the opposite of self-sufficiency. Poor in spirit speaks of those who realize they are, in, they are totally helpless apart from God. That outside of Jesus Christ, we are morally and spiritually bankrupt. We have no chance without Him. I love Titus 3, 4 through 7. It says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, listen to this, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth or regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Justified by whose grace? His grace, not ours. Those that are poor in spirit, we realize that we are completely helpless without Him. Outside of Jesus Christ, I'm morally bankrupt and I am capable of doing all kinds of things. And I love that he says, We are saved not by the righteous things that we do. A lot of this world is about goodness. You know, humanism reigns. It's about being good enough. It's about just everybody just love each other and, and be good. Outside of Christ, we don't have a chance to do that. We're not good. The Bible says, There is none good, no, not one. None of us are good. Our nature is not good. That's why we needed Christ, that's why we needed the cross. Isaiah describes our righteousness or our good works, our goodness, as filthy rags. The greatest human effort on earth equals garbage. That's good news because we need Jesus. We think that we're okay because we're a good person. A lot of people hear, well, I'm just trying to be a good person. What does that mean? How good is good? You know, is there a a good bucket that you keep throwing good things in and it finally tops out and you're defined as a good person? The only problem is our good bucket has a huge hole on the bottom of it. It'll never fill up. And we depend on our own self-righteousness. But self-righteousness will not make you eternally happy. Jesus says, blessed are those who are not self-righteous, who are poor in spirit. They will get the kingdom of heaven. When you realize that you're bankrupt spiritually without Christ, you get the kingdom in your hearts and you get the promise of eternity. Apart from Jesus, we're totally lost. And it's only by his grace that we are saved. Isn't that a humbling idea, though, a humbling thing? But it's a gracious thing. Even self-righteous religious acts won't save us. Coming to church will not save you. You need to come to church. The Bible says we should come together and we should encourage one another to love and good deeds and and, and walk in relationship with others. We should come together, but that does not save us. It is our relationship with Jesus. It is surrendering to Him. It's receiving His grace that saves us. During worship, Patty came up to me, and she said, I got this last week, but it was kind of heavy on my heart. She said, you know that story about the two men, the, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee um, that were in the temple, and she starts you know, talking about that, that, and I just started smiling because that is my text right here. So I believe God is speaking this morning. Luke chapter 18. I've referred to this passage from time to time, but it goes in to what we're saying here, is you have a very, very religious, you have a church person. Jesus is describing somebody that goes to church all the time, a church person, and then a person that is pretty broken and they realize their brokenness, and he gives this parable. Listen to what it says, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. I love how it starts. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. You could stop right there and get a lot of information. To some of those who were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else, he really is aiming at religious church people that think that they are righteous in and of themselves. He gave this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, that's the church guy, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, interestingly enough, get me as far away from that other guy as possible, stood by myself and prayed. I love this. This is funny and tragic all at the same time. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. When you're at the altar and you're humbling yourself before God or you're trying, and then you thank God that you're not like the person that's kneeling next to you, that's a huge problem, if you were wondering. God, thank you that I'm not a thief, robber. I'm not an adulterer, and I'm not even like that guy. Then he gives the list. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Makes you wonder why he's even praying. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's what Jesus says about these two men. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you are leaning on your own self-righteousness and you begin to exalt yourself and exalt your goodness and exalt your righteousness, Jesus himself is going to humble us. That is a fearful passage. This guy was saying, I'm righteous because look at all the great things that I do. I'm not like this, and, and I'm, I'm, I, I do this. And he's talking about his great works. And the other guy just simply realizes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus, without you, God, without you, I am just nothing. And God says, he is justified before me. And his prayers go are answered. Because a part of our self-righteousness, and we, come, we find it in here, is... A lot of times we, 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 we like to categorize sin, don't we? What we define as sin and a stronghold is the things that I'm not dealing with. The things that I'm dealing with are a weakness or a struggle. It's a nice way of saying I have a sin and stronghold problem, but I don't want to call it that. It's a weakness, it's a struggle. I'm struggling this week. But those big sins that we like to categorize now, man, that guy really has a stronghold in his life. He's dealing with sin. God, help me in my struggle. Help him in his stronghold. Don't we do it? God, help us. Jesus, forgive me of my sins and my strongholds. God, break them out of my life. And let us stop categorizing sin. Jesus said this, if you are guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. Stop categorizing sin. Let's stop making camps of these are the bad ones, these are the not-so-bad ones, because usually the not-so-bad is where I'm at. And the really bad ones are over there. Sometimes we, 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 we need the people in the world. We need the sinners to be, we need to categorize them so I don't really feel that bad about what I'm doing. And God is looking for us to, with humble hearts to come before him and say, like that tax collector, I, I, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. The difference between these two men, one approached God in his self-righteousness, the other approached God in his humility. One was accepted and one was not. I love Psalm 51. We're going to touch into that in a minute and then in the second one. But Psalm 51.17 says this, David is praying. He said, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit or or a contrite heart. And he says, God will not despise that, or God won't reject a broken and repentant heart. He doesn't reject that. In fact, that gets God's attention. You really want to get God's attention? Come to him and be poor in spirit. Lord, I desperately need you. I desperately need you. And he says, you have got my attention because you're not coming with your own self-righteousness. And if you come in your own self-righteousness, basically the wordage there is he ignores you. I don't know about you, I don't want to get ignored by God. So if we truly want to be blessed, happy, eternally happy, having the, the favor and the prosperity of God, we need an attitude of humility, to be poor in spirit, to realize that we are completely and totally dependent on Jesus. And I've said this before, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he ushered in can only be understood in a place of total, unconditional surrender of our lives to Jesus Christ. It can't be understood outside of that. To have that attitude, we have to be completely dependent on him. Attitude two is this, Matthew 5, 4. We need an attitude of repentance. Repentance. Repentance, humility and repentance. Isn't it interesting that Jesus starts off with, the, those are the first two attitudes. Humility and repentance. Because he's dealing with us. It's interesting, you could look at the Beatitudes, he deals with us first and then it's how we deal with others. Later on, it's the blessed are the merciful. You know, when we show mercy to others, the first, these first two is he's dealing directly with us in our humility and Repentance. Because before we can show mercy to others, we got to get right with God. But he says this, Matthew 5, 4: Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to be comforted by God. Do you ever want his comfort? You want the Holy Spirit to come and comfort you? Blessed are those who mourn. What is Jesus saying? He's not talking about us walking around sad depressed. Blessed are those that mourn. I mean, I'm just going to mourn all day long. I'm just going to be in mourning. No, actually the opposite is, is true here. Jesus is speaking about those who mourn over their sin. He just talks about humility and self-righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit that they are dependent on God. And now he's saying, blessed, happy are those who mourn over their sin. Because when you humble yourself before God, the next step is right. It's repentance I need him, and then God, help me. A godly sorrow that produces repentance and leads to salvation. You know, true sorrow is that it affects a person down deep in their soul. True sorrow. When we've blown it. We've all been there. You know you have the morning of when you've been caught? (laughs) It's quite different. You know, I got caught, I think, you know, we remember it as kids or our kids or maybe when we we're adults. When you get caught, there is a mourning that you have, but it's, it's really you're sorry that you got caught. I remember as a kid, I got, you know, you get caught doing things. And so here's the sin nature is, and there were times where I was truly sorry. You know, God, forgive me. I asked my mom and dad to forgive me and I, I blew it. Remember the thought process, though? Here shows the sin nature, is i got to figure out how to do that without getting caught. i got to plan this a little better. That's not good, by the way, if you're doing that. True sorrow that affects us deep down inside. Deep agony because we know that what we have done wrong deserves punishment. Jesus said that. I, I, I mean... It, He's speaking to us. Paul mentions it again in Romans 6. He said, The wages of sin are death, the fruit of our sin. If we choose to live a lifestyle of sin and we just, we never turn to God, we never repent, it just, it leads to a pathway of death, spiritual death. Deep agony because our sin, when we've blown it and it's what nailed Jesus to the cross, that should bring us great agony. Not depression, but true godly sorrow. And it goes along, I I said this before, it goes with the first beatitude, that we realize that we cannot save ourselves and our own righteousness gets us out of this mess. But our sin should cause us to, to look at the cross in two ways. Number one, true remorse and mourning. True remorse and mourning, not depression and shame. That's where the enemy comes in. There is a difference. We have an enemy of our souls that wants to take godly sorrow and turn it into shame and condemnation. Don't let him do that to you. Confess it. Receive God's grace. But we, true remorse and mourning, not depression and shame. And then the second thing is joy, awe, and wonder at the significance of what he did for us that we don't have to pay for our own sin. Jesus already did. That's why true mourning and repentance brings us happiness. The end result is happiness. Jesus, look at what you did for me out of great love for me. He did not do it just because, well... You know, I'm tolerating humanity and I have to die. No, he did it out of love. Paul said that he demonstrated his love through the cross. So yes, our sin should make us have godly sorrow, but it also should make us say, Jesus, how awesome is your love. And to be in awe and wonder at the significance of the cross. Because without the cross, we have no chance. True repentance brings eternal happiness. Look at it. There's a couple of passages here. Acts 3.19 Peter's preaching, he said, repent, that's godly sorry, turn from your sins, that times of refreshing or joy may come from the presence of the Lord, the tie of repentance and joy. We all know the story. I'm going to read part of uh, Psalm 51 to you. But King David, we, we, a lot of us are familiar with the story. If we were categorizing sin, David, these are biggies. These are huge. But we're not to do that. Everybody knows he was, he was a king, godly king, loved God with all of his heart, but he blew it big time. Had an affair with, with a married woman. Didn't come clean. I mean, God gave him opportunities to come clean, to repent, to turn. I mean, God's trying to speak to him through servants and and so then he covers his tracks by having her husband killed. So it's getting worse and worse. He's going deeper and deeper into the pit. But you know what was about his heart that got God's attention? Because God describes him as a man after my own heart. Was it was his response, and that's what I'm talking about, his response to the sin he has a affair, he covers it up, and it's horrific, and then he is confronted. And again, we must not single out sin and say, well, those are biggies. At least I didn't do what David did. But if we're, if we're guilty of one part of the law, we are, we are guilty of all of it. But his response is what got God's attention. He felt sorrow. He felt remorse. He felt guilt. He felt ashamed for what he did, but he came to the Lord. He ran to the Lord. That is so important is if you're not right with God, don't run from him, run to him. He is what you need. He's what I need. Listen to his response, Psalm 51. And I want you to listen to the tie between repentance and joy and happiness. And this this psalm is directly, it says, after he had been busted, after the, the prophet Nathan came and gave him this parable and confronted him in his sin, Here was David's response, have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your unfailing love. He's responding to God's love. He's responding to God's discipline as God's love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. That's where God is reaching into each of us. He's trying to do an inner work. And deep inner work in each one of us. He desired truth in the inner. Do you teach me wisdom in the inmost place? Because when we get inner transformation, it will manifest outwardly. A lot of us are trying to figure out how to put on the outward show to convince people that we're okay. God wants truth in the innermost being. Then he says, clean me with, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. You hear the joy. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a a right or a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Do you hear how humble this prayer is? God, whatever happens, let me be right with you. And then I love verse 12, and we'll end here because of the tie of 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 this the prayer goes on but he says restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me he's talking about eternal happiness happiness blessed are those who mourn happy are those who mourn And there's a tie between when we understand God's forgiveness and we understand true repentance, that we have joy and happiness. How does that happen? Because coming clean brings freedom. Coming clean brings joy in our innermost being. Is it hard when you confess? Is it hard to bring it out in the light? Oh, yes, it is. But I tell you, it will bring a freedom like you've never known before. It makes you clean. It makes you free. It, the chains are gone. There's nothing that's, that's that's happier than when you are set free by Jesus. That's why when Jesus came into the temple, when He started in Luke he came into and he quotes Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are held captive. He came, his mission was to set us free, for us to walk in freedom, for us to walk clean and free and to break off our chains. Because the opposite is true: covering it up, hiding it in the dark places, sneaking around, trying to figure out how to get away with it. It brings darkness. It brings bondage. It will bring depression. I guarantee you, those are the, that's the fruit of doing that. And Jesus offers freedom, cleanness of heart, and it's sweet. It's truly happy. When we sin, we should feel that level of guilt. We should feel God's conviction because he loves us. And you hear what David said. David was tying the conviction power of the Holy Spirit to his compassion. We should mourn over our sin, but we should run to him and have the right response before him to allow God to cleanse our hearts and our minds through Jesus Christ and through the cross. Not to get condemned by the enemy that we're... Nothing, because it's not about our righteousness anyway. We are covered in his righteousness. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Here's the promise. The other one was that they would receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want God's comfort. Repentance brings true happiness. I want us to pursue happiness, but I want us to pursue it the way Jesus defines it. You want to be blessed? I do. I want to be eternally happy. I want to be spiritually prosperous. I want to have life joy and satisfaction in God's favor, regardless of my outward circumstances and condition. And Jesus begins the sermon by saying two huge things to all of us. And he was saying it to his disciples, so he's saying it to his followers. Blessed are you if you're poor in spirit and you realize your dependency on God. Blessed are you if you mourn when we sin, allowing it to humble us and to run to him. For you will receive the kingdom and you'll be comforted by God. The right attitudes before God humility, and repentance. And I encourage you, as I encourage myself, that we get these into our hearts, that we walk these out daily. Because again, we're going to receive Him. When we get this in our spirit, we receive Him. We receive His kingdom. Without Him, we can do nothing. What is God speaking to you about today? Because we can hear the words. I can just preach the words, and we can all leave here, and it just really doesn't matter. But God's speaking to us today, and then we have to have a response to him. What will our response be to Jesus today? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much, and Lord, we want to have the right response. We want to hear your words when you began the Sermon on the Mount and you, those f- first few words that you uttered, happy, blessed, eternally happy, are those who are poor in spirit, who, who realize their great need of me. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I promise you, if you understand that you can't do it in your own self-righteousness, and you understand that you're spiritually bankrupt, you understand that you need me, you will get the kingdom. And then, Jesus, you said, blessed are those who mourn, repent, and you will be comforted. Lord, we all have issues that we've dealt with, that we might be dealing with now, our attitudes. Lord, our attitudes, we confess, have been bad. And Lord, we we, want to have the right attitude before you. We want to have the attitude of Jesus. We want to feel your comfort, Lord God. We want to humble ourselves, and we don't want to look at others. We don't want to look at others, what they do or don't do. Lord, forgive us for categorizing sin. Forgive me, God, for when I've called my own sin and my own bondage a weakness or a struggle, and I look at other people, and I think of how they need to get rid of their sin and their stronghold. God, forgive me. We need you today. We want your kingdom, and we want, more importantly, we want Jesus in our hearts. today i just before we close up i just if the lord has been speaking to you uh, something in this message in the words of jesus i just want to agree with you in prayer i'm not going to ask you to blurt it out hey what god, what is god dealing with you today I, I just want you to raise your hand if god's speaking something to you and i just want to pray for you just raise them up and all right let's pray and and god sees your heart more than your hand anyway Jesus, for these ones, oh God, that raise their hands, Lord, just that you are, are dealing with something. You're, you're putting your hand on something. Lord, I know my own life. There's things that, you, that you're putting your finger on, and, and I want to respond to you in a right way. We want to humble ourselves before you, God. I pray, Jesus, that our heart response to you would be to humble ourselves before you. Create in us a clean heart, oh God. Lord, thank you that when we walk in humility, we humble ourselves before you. Thank you, Lord, that when we turn from our sin and we understand what, it, what, what happens with all that, Lord, let it bring us great happiness that we can walk in joy knowing that we belong to Jesus. Lord, I pray for each person in this room, Lord, that we would be more like you, that we would have the attitude of Jesus Christ. We love you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.